Get ready for the next adventure. Here's Merrily Now. Welcome to Super Soul Solutions, everyone. Hopefully, you all listened to part one by now. Today's show, part two, is again with U.S. Marine Corps Special Sections Captain Randy Kramer, an augmented super soldier who went to Mars for 17 years and back, twice, in fact. Randy was essentially given a legal mandate from his Marine Corps Special Sections chain of command to come forward as the Marine's official public spokesperson to begin to share and disclose more truth. Today, Randy will provide brief descriptions of currently used and secretly funded time travel, timeline shifts, portals, and jump gates. You will also be introduced to a spacefaring and highly intelligent inter-Earth species or two. And super cool, you will learn how and who ensures that we maintain a positive timeline for the human race on Earth. Thank you, Randy, for your courage and willingness to be here with us again. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to be here. Oh, good. (laughs) Me too. So, Randy, if you remember, in part one, you got into detail of how the holographic medical beds completely regenerated your body parts and very fast, as well as other soldiers. And as you have experienced, the med beds also do many other things like age regression. So can you describe how you were personally age regressed so you could do two tours of 17 years and back for the Mars Defense Force? And by the way, folks, this age regression is used with every super soldier I've researched and talked with because, remember, they're $100 million assets. That's how they're considered. So, Randy, go for it. So, uh, firstly, let me apologize for not giving you a a better, more accurate bio and catching that because, uh, no, it was a single 30-year tour that I did that I was deployed to at 17 years old. 17 and a half years, a little bit more than three months-ish of that was spent in the MDF. The rest of my time was spent elsewhere in the fleet. Um, and oh, okay. at the end of that tour, that's, that's, no worries. Um, and at the end of the tour is when they send you back to Luna Operations Command for what they say is an age regression process, but it really has nothing to do with the kind. Um, what they actually do is they make something like a dozen different clones of yourself. Um, And the reason they make like a dozen of them is because even when you start with a proper sequence, you're growing something that is a living process of how it develops. And so you don't always get them right. And so if you make 12 copies you're really going to get a few that are going to be kind of not, you know, they're going to be throwaways. And then of the ones that you have left that you could use, you're really going to want to pick the best one. So they make about, you know, whatever it is, 10, 11 or 12 of them, and then pick the best one, which my understanding is a ridiculously fast process, meaning they can essentially take a sample, a cell sample and turn it into a adult, 17 or 18 year old adult in less than 72 hours, which seems like ridiculously fast to me, but given 
just some of the technology that I know might be involved in that process. That's something I've never actually gotten to watch happen. Uh, it, it's plausible. Certainly there's a number of different ways in which you could accelerate a temporal field around the tissue itself so that you're in effect allowing it to grow through a natural process and actually have to age the number of years that it does, but you're doing it within a temporal field that's moving at a different rate of time. So then you're done in 72 hours. I can see it. That would be one way that it might be done. Um, so what they actually, actually what they do is then they take uh, the best one of those and then your what you understand to be your consciousness and it's there are weird words here because we can say something like soul we can say something like spirit we can say something like consciousness and what we're talking about is something that is none of those things and all of those things um, and so it's, it's a difficult thing to describe and the science behind it is not my specialty, but what I can speak to it is that what exists as a fluid, literally a quantum fluid is that consciousness or that essence that is you that lives within the shell of the vehicle of your body or whatever vehicle that you're in at the and so you can remove that and put it into another vessel or another container. You could put it into a jar or you could put it into a robot technically, or you could put it into another person or you could put it into an exact copy of itself, a clone duplicate that's decades younger so that you can put it back 15 minutes after it left so that, you know, when you wake up, you're in a 17-year-old body again, and you think, oh, that was a really long dream. So, but the age that's regression... That's going to be a question. Quotes, yeah, that's going to be a I'm question sorry, a ahead. little later. Um, that's going to be a question a little, in a couple of minutes, of how that's possible once we get into more of the time kind of thing. Okay? Sure. And Okay, go ahead. Oh, no, that's really about it. Um, so age regression really isn't regression. It, it's they, they make a younger version of yourself. But it is possible to take a physical body and just through regeneration of the tissue through the holographic cellular regeneration process to get to a near age regressed or youthful appearance just physiologically if that's what you're going for. It's certainly possible. Just in that particular case, they don't want to let you keep the original body. They really want to get rid of the body that you had that you served your tour with and throw it into a furnace and give you a new one for a list of reasons. Right. Okay. So basically then um, I get it. So like the part one where we discussed how the body's regenerated, someone can be regenerated, of course. And then the mm -hmm. second is using clones which a lot of people I don't think are aware how many clones are out there and how many are used. And that was fascinating to know how fast they can make them. So would you be considered no. your original or would you be a clone at this point? Clone oh, no, 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 no. Well, my, to be perfectly honest, during my tour of duty, my body had been regenerated and replaced several times. So I wasn't mm -hmm. on my, by the time I finished my tour, I wasn't on my first chassis anyway. <laughs> At that point, yeah. there was some number of times that my chassis had been replaced 
and reparted and put back together so many times that there's no way that you could say that that was the original original. It was just, it still had the original brain sort of neural pathway patterning, which is another reason they want to get you into a new body so that that resets. Um, So I'm not considered a clone because I'm, my, I'm me inside of me. A clone yeah, of me, which is a, yeah, that so so autom- it doesn't matter what vehicle I'm in. Doesn't matter how many copies I've had. Doesn't how many versions of physical bodies I've had. If it's me that's inside of it, then I'm not considered a clone in any way, shape, or form. Um, a clone of a person is a copy that is separate from the consciousness of that original person. So there's there's a. Def- clear definition between what a clone is and what a clone isn't, no matter what number of copies of physical bodies or cloned bodies that I've had. Okay. And there's also, do I have this right, that there's also clones that have souls and ones that don't? Or is that getting too complicated? Well, so again, it's not my area of speciality. I will say that Mm -hmm. from what I understand, to make a clone at all requires a tiny, 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 tiny sliver drop of this, of that piece of you. And it only requires... Meaning the soul. If we use the soul. Okay. Yeah, we can use that. Yeah, we can use that. Okay. Right. Yeah, we can okay. we can say that. Um, so the clone itself has to have that in order to be able to develop. If if it doesn't have that, it won't develop past a certain number of of cell configuration. It will essentially start to break down and fall apart. So, or what you end up with as a final product is so mentally retarded because there, there yeah. was no consciousness driving the formation of the brain tissue and so forth and the sort of formative parts, which some people don't realize is necessary, um, then mm-hmm. you can just end up with a really, really bad copy. So you put a teeny sliver in, but it doesn't effectively have its own conscience, its own understanding of morality, ethics, doesn't have your own memories or your own personality, it's really just not much more than a physical copy with a teeny, 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 teeny part of yourself so that it can be operational. Um, now, yeah. again, because this is a quantum fluid dynamic that you can move from vessel to vessel, technically, meaning, there's meaning really your, not much your limit. Soul, your soul yeah, is like so, this, this kind of plasma. Is it plasma also? Kind of? Well, uh, it's a quantum Argent. fluid. Plasmas are sort of considered to be a state of matter that is still molecular. Uh, mm-hmm. A quantum fluid dynamic is something that is a fluid at a quantum level. So we're talking okay. about like really tiny, you know, subatomic particles that are held together in some kind of quantum fluid, which is ill-defined, even as I understand it scientifically, like there's really not sure what it's made of other than that. Mm -hmm. You can, it has a volume uh, and you can essentially pump it from one vessel to another, like you can any other liquid dynamic. It just happens to be, you know, this quantum fluid. So essentially the theoretically, it is essentially limitless. What, and where you can move that soul from vessel to vessel to vessel. So whether, again, that's another clone, 
But again, as soon mm-hmm. as the clone has a soul, well, it's no longer a clone. It's, the, it's whoever that person is. Whoever that person mm-hmm. is is now that person in that physical shell. So a clone is technically only a clone as long as it doesn't have a soul in it. As soon as you put one in it, then it's no longer a clone. It's that person. Okay. Now you, and you technically so- could. You technically could harvest souls from dead people or people who are about to die yeah, and then put we them in weird or other bodies. <laughs> yeah. I, well, and I, 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 It'll yeah, be too much, I don't, too much for the people. Right well, now, and I think, I think, you know, I don't think, I don't think much of the experimentation in that direction has been successful no. enough for it to be a thing. So it, it's, yeah, it's the, the, there are weird things that you can do with it, but a lot of the science prevents some of the more Frankenstein-ish, sort of application yeah. of it. So it's not it's not a kind of a technology that people should be scared of. It's it's really just more like understanding that bodies are like cars and you can move a driver out of a car and put them in another car. You know, if you just kinda of understand it as the same uh-huh. dynamic, um, then it's just, you know, straightforward. You know what this appears to give credence for is not only reincarnation where the soul goes into different bodies, but mm-hmm. what's fascinating is that it gives credence for um, something we most of us have known, but a lot don't, is that the soul drives the body and directs the body because it seems mm-hmm. like the body has its own entity or intelligence, as you said, up to a certain point, kind of on automatic, and then it's going to start deteriorating unless it has the full soul essence in there, correct? Or at least right. enough. But, but to be fair, right, but to be fair too, the, the way that your soul has to interface with the body, there are many, mm-hmm. many things mechanically, biologically, hormonally, neurobiologically that happen within the body that also drive the actions of the soul. So it's a two-way relationship, and it's not so straightforward as that we're all in Ooh. complete control of our bodies because clearly we're all not in complete control of our bodies. And so the question is who's driving who sometimes because there's, there's, there's an, there's, there's all the autonomic responses of the biological organism that are designed to survive and would be Mm -hmm. bad if those mechanisms didn't exist there because then we would cease to survive and exist as a species. So, but those things, I mean, that's really a lot of the conflict, of being a human being between what we idealize, how we should feel, think, act, and then how we actually do because we're interfacing with an organism that doesn't just turn left when we say left or turn right when we say right as we're going down the street and we say, hey, I want to go left. It says, no, I want to go right over here and have a beer or whatever is driving the physical body to do something, which can be food, sex, alcohol, drugs, different kinds right. of you know, pleasure, even cellular memory, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, oh boy, there could be a whole, whole, uh, a lot of variables radio show on that. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah. The the bigger answer is there's just a lot of variables there. And so, uh, and that a lot of the difficulties that people have as human beings come in the conflict between who's driving, who you're, is your body driving your soul or is your soul driving your body? Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. And hopefully you can integrate well, <laughs> too, which is always interesting. Yeah, that will take us down a whole other direction. Okay, yeah. so 
maybe we should get, uh, so people understand kind of a little bit more about your full experience, we should get into, oh, this will be so easy for you, Randy, one of the most complicated subjects on time travel technology. And if you can kind of, um, you know, simplify regarding portals, wormholes, jump gate a little bit, and that would be useful for people before we go on. Well, it turns out there's some similar laws of physics in which we start to understand the ability to move through space differently that also become critical in understanding how to move through time differently. However, the applications of those technologies can be really, really different. So, for instance, wormholes uh, typically um, move an object from one point in space to another. And the technology that you use to open a jump gate portal from one place to another in space is a begins with the same physics, but when you're really talking about engineering and application is night and day different from a device that is trying to create a wormhole that travels through time, that not just moves you in space, or maybe doesn't move you in space hardly at all, but is designed to move you through time, through temporal space, so that you go either to the chosen location or to where you already are in a different time, forwards or backwards. And then that starts to get into all the weird sort of physics of, timelines and do they merge are they separate do they all happen which i'm going to also be asking you yeah down the line yeah yeah Yeah. some of the and and some of those answers i can answer because i've taken the class but not because it's you know my best subject but uh so you'll 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 know more than most but what about so you've traveled through portals of course and jump gates oh yeah absolutely yeah plenty so can you describe that kind of for people So that's an interesting technology that, as I understand, has evolved over time as the engineering application has changed. So, for instance, the first jump gate that I ever jumped through um, had no color to it. It appeared not, not right to say that it appeared black. It appeared in the absence of color, to have the absence of color. Um, I, could faintly see what appeared to be a spiral in like UV spectrum because um, my eyes can see a little bit in the UV spectrum. Um, and, but essentially there was not much to see from one side to the other and moving through it is, is a really short distance as far as how the tunnel of the wormhole itself is not very long. It's not like you're, moving more than a few inches or, you know, in some cases maybe like a foot and a half or, you know, two and a half feet as far as the length of the entry of the wormhole itself. Like, so when you enter into the entry point and you come out the exit point, you really have a step and a half or two steps that you can take before you're on the other side. But what happened in the first types of wormholes that, or jump gates that we used or that I jumped through is there's a disorientation point where your inner ear gets completely scrambled and even though you're, nothing is changing in what your physical body is doing, no change in your orientation, no change in 
the way at which your physical body is moving through space changes in any way, shape, or form. But your perception of it does, and you can't see for the second or second and a half that you're in the tunnel of the wormhole itself because the rest of your eyeballs cannot perceive what's happening with the light because all the light is moving in one direction faster than you can see it. Mm-hmm. So you think that you're spinning around and around and around and around and around and around, but you're not, you're still walking. And so you're trying to take a firm, you know, approach as you go through it so that you don't just step into it, but that you are walking firmly in a forward direction so that no matter what happens in the disorientation period, you will continue to walk forwards and come out the other end. And then depending on how many times you've done it, depends on sort of what the recovery time is of that disorientation when you come out the other side. By the time Fascinating. I fin- yeah, well, by the time I finished my tour of duty, they had uh, a jump gate, wormhole, doorway, portal that was really like looking through a door or a window that you stepped through and there was no disorientation and the light was not being ripped through it in one direction so you couldn't see what was happening. You absolutely could see the other side as if it were just a doorway in space standing in front of you, just like in the movies. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I know in the old days with Andrew, uh, Andrew Bociago, you know, um, there were, well, of course, and there's been all kinds of accidents sending experimenting with wormholes and portals and jump cakes. Oh, yeah. But um, he said, if I remember right, he said he actually had to train himself to hold his breath. And he also said, at first, you've got a little, I don't know what the term would be, vertigo or seasickness or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. That's the kind of disorientation you're talking about, yeah. And yeah, then the bunny, think... he... Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. You're more interesting. You go. No, I, okay. well, I was, I was just saying that, that if I understand correctly, that the, the again, the es- escalation and progression of the technology that what we were using was probably a little less disorientating and a little less confusing than the stuff that he was using before. But it was, just, yeah, they would say take a deep breath. They didn't just say hold your breath. They say take a deep breath and then walk firmly through so that you weren't exhale together supposedly not oxygen inside the tube but it's such a short distance it doesn't really matter because you just you're literally in there just you know blink of an eye because it's a very short walk and then um yeah and there's natural of course uh portals on the earth there's moving portals on the earth there's man-made Right, <laughs> well, yeah, no, because yeah, wormholes, yeah, wormholes turn out, yeah, wormholes turn out to be a natural phenomenon, and so the study and science of making jump gates portals is not about creating something that's never been created before, it's simply about looking at a natural phenomenon and going, Oh, how do we replicate that and make it go where we want it to go? So, naturally occurring mm-hmm. portals and wormholes can, you know, pull people from anywhere to anywhere. There are vortexes that pull wormhole like destination points to them. So you can get yanked out of those places and sent to who knows where through weird random wormholes. There have been a number of interesting cases of pilots who have reported uh, being on track, flying to a destination from one point to another, and 
basically seen a, a white bright flash of light and a like a, mm-hmm. a, a cracking sound and then ending up um, hundreds of miles off course and having to, you know, radio in and be like, where the heck am I? And have exactly. the power them. You're, you're hundreds Bermuda of miles off course and... within you know, a second. Yeah. You know. So, but, but the, mm-hmm. what those are, but those are things that have happened not even anywhere near the Bermuda Triangle. Some of those events have occurred in places where there's no known, like weird vortex, geomagnetic, electromagnetic, time-space distortion activity. So it's a, it's a phenomenon that can just occur if you happen to walk into one randomly that you can't see because they're invisible to the naked eye. So whatever the odds are that as they randomly pop in and pop out, and some of them obviously don't stabilize, they're not there for much longer than a blink of an eye, like what are the odds mm-hmm. that you might walk into one or that the fact, or what are the odds that as you're sitting in a chair, if what, statistically one were to pop into your personal space, into your bedroom, let's say, and then blink out two seconds later and you didn't see it, you'd never know otherwise because you were sitting in a chair the whole time and not in any danger of interacting in, in any way, shape, or form. So right. it, it's, a, it's a natural phenomenon that we've learned to replicate. And there are some species as, and races who've done amazing with even more advanced uses of the technology. There are ways to do it mentally, psionically, different ways yeah. of using frequency modulators to, you know, create the be- end point and the beginning point. And yeah, it's, it's not like there's crap. one way to do it. Yeah. And yeah, yeah well, and, and, and it's also completely different if you're trying to move a person through a small portal versus if you're trying to move a ship through a large one. That's a whole; those are two totally different things, too. Mm. And you know what you were describing? Another term I think is used for it is time slips. I studied that all through history. There's been time slips where people like move through, and then they end up in the Civil War time. <laughs> you know, like weird stuff, right? Yeah, no, there, there, there's some. There are some genuinely bizarre cases of especially people popping in and out of places that, that don't speak the language or speak some other language that there's yeah. no reason why a person who, you know, speaks that language should have ended up in that place randomly at that time, confused and unaware of, you know, how to communicate or get, you know, anywhere from where they were going. It just seems to absolutely just pop in and out. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's a strange phenomenon, and there's there's lots of reports and lots of cases that are not well-documented and some well-documented cases, um, and certainly mm-hmm. well-documented in the certain that if, if it happens to a guy in an airplane, there's flight logs. There's FAA flight logs. There's, you know, FAA communication to the tower. There's radar that says, oh, we, we're tracking this guy here, and then all of a sudden he's off radar, and then he radios in, and he's over here tracking 500 miles away. So that's evidentiary data that that actually happened so most of the incidences are not well documented but it's a weird natural thing that happens all the time and some people yeah and there's leftover remnants right something you know portal someone yeah someone there long time ago they never really deactivated (laughs) or turned it off maybe they just sort of took away the thing that made the door open and they thought yeah we're good no one will be able to open that door again but then you know, maybe maybe it ha- maybe it opens up, or someone figures out how to open it up, or cracks it open, or anyway, it's a weird phenomenon. All kinds of weird shit can happen. It is. It's really amazing. And as you and I both know, so many uh, covert programs are there in a second to pick up all those ooparts are out of place and time. 
part, so, because you know, they got to change the whole history book on that one. You know? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So obviously any anything weird like that pops up, someone's going to, you know, show up and shush it, you know, like, well, yeah. it's me. Don't talk about that. That's cute. Okay, so um, I totally agree, and this is so fun to talk about. So for 10 years, uh, the other super soldiers I've talked with, no matter what military branch or corporations, they all lead double life, and they often go to school full-time as kids, and then at night take being taken off for secret advanced training for fighting extraterrestrial beings, in your case, to protect Earth, other planets, asteroid bases out in space. So, Randy, I don't think most people know that for you it started at five years old as one of 300 children. Oh, no, no, even even before that. No, no, I was genetically engineered from the ground up. So, really, it was even before I was born, like the very, very get-go of my creation. Yeah. But I'm talking the actual traveling. That was even younger than that. No, that was even younger. Wow. That, that was infant age, months, weeks. I mean, probably the first time that, you know, they were doing um, what I would call as passive programming, which I can, mm. I can remember as clear as yesterday being essentially an uh, infant, not much able to do more than, you know, kick and swing my arms around in a bassinet, looking at a ceiling that they're projecting all kinds of simple, like math, geometry, like basically trying to like mm. throw a bunch of like science and math, you know, some sort of programming with classical music going on the ground, hope, hoping some of it's going to like stick in our brains or something like that. So yeah, they started mm-hmm. some of that stuff really early. Oh, physical wow. Physical training though so you... was probably about four years old, four, four and a half physical training. Okay. Started yeah. physical, later weaponry. And so you were one of, if I remember right, one of 300 children who are part of the covert military training program called Project Moonshadow. Was that right? That is correct, yes. Okay. That is the, that so is the program think, that essentially designed and built all 300 of us, and it was had a very specific set of protocols and a very specific goal set, and which is why there were only 300 subjects in the program. Otherwise, there would have been a lot more, but it was – it was a it was a limited uh, pilot program, really. So that's why there are only 300 subjects. Okay. So I think our listeners would find it very interesting to learn how it's possible and commonly practiced for so many soldiers, would-be soldiers, children, to go on these missions for hours without anyone like their family knowing they're gone, right? So you can be gone five hours or six hours, and you can be brought back three minutes after you left. So could you describe that kind of technology? So, So basically there are certain, let's call them, um, drive systems for spacecraft, which also have the ability to fold space and time. So the, the, the craft itself doesn't just have to worry about slipping through one space and time, but or in, in space, but also through time if it wants to. But that's not how every spaceship works. Not every spaceship has a drive system that affects time space in the same way. There, but there are types of drive systems that do. So when you have a drive system that can do that, that vehicle has the potential.
potential, but not necessarily the ability without proper engineering to actually do time travel. Okay, so it has to be a specific type of vehicle that has a specific drive system and is also engineered to travel through time. So of those vehicles, there are a limited number. And so when they need to move people through time, like have a group of uh, subjects, soldiers, that they're like, all right, we have to have all of these people back you know, 15 minutes after we, you know, took them away for a training session uh, by this, and they're all going on a normal linear clock, right? So they're saying by this amount of time when they're done, then within an hour after that, we need to have them on board this vehicle and we need to be able to transport them back to their locations where we can, you know, just pop them in, boom, 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 right back where they go and have it done in, you know, less than an hour because you have a limited amount of time that you can, have these vehicles doing what they're doing and it's going to take a lot of really careful planning. So if you think about air traffic control, air traffic control has this very specific and completely complex way of making sure that planes don't crash so that they land at the right time so that someone else isn't landing at the same place at the same time and that everyone's, you know, in sync with using the runways at the right time and using the gates at the right time. Doing the same thing with time travel is just a little more complex, but it's essentially the same kind of math. You're, you're basically just having people who are coordinating this movement in such a way that nobody runs into each other. If you can do that, if you can run that system, and again, a very efficient system of temporal traffic control can do that, just like a very system, uh, efficient system of air traffic control can do that with no accidents, then everyone can get back to the place that they need to be 15 minutes after they left because you have a system that is runs more smoothly than a Swiss watch and is simply doing so not just spatially, but temporally spatially so that you're also keeping into that larger calculation of making sure no one collides with each other, what the times are. And as long Mm -hmm. as you make sure, and as long as you do it right and nobody runs into each other, and no one touches each other, uh, then mm-hmm. you don't have, you know, weird paradoxes that end time and space, which I don't think that actually happens. But the guys at Time Corps, when they, you know, give the lecture uh, in the class on temporal mechanics, mm-hmm. they try and mm-hmm. scare the crap out of you and say, if you ever have the opportunity to participate in a temporal anomaly, do not shake your hand, do not touch yourself, do not hug yourself, do not touch another person. Like, meaning, don't do meaning it. Meaning running into yourself. Yeah, I know a doctor friend of mine who did that, and he passed out, and he lost his mind for three months. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't think it ends. Yeah, I don't think it ends all time and space like they scare you, but I think the consequences are severe, and so they just want to terrify everybody and not have to explain it. Just go, don't do it. Yeah. So you mentioned time car. You gave away one of the coolest things, and so let's blend into that. How about sharing? Uh, explaining a little bit about timelines and then share who manages the timeline to help keep us stay on a positive timeline trajectory and how that works. Okay. Sure. So we have, uh, I guess, and when I say we, I just mean we as Terrans, as earthlings, uh, have our own division of temporal management called time for. 
So this is a group of people that is made up of absolutely the smartest people in the freaking world because it literally takes a brain capacity that is higher than most people's to be able to comprehend how you have to do these temporal calculations. And it just takes a certain like high freaking IQ to do it. And there's a totally a curve in like the smarter you are, the more you have a chance of being able to grasp temporal mechanics. And if you're just not bright enough, the harder it's going to be for you to even contemplate like things moving, not linear in time. So there's a, there's a direct kind of IQ relationship with people being able to understand temporal mechanics. So this is an organization made up of the smartest people in the world. Smartest people. And they're called time court, right? They're called time court. Yeah. Now they, they do um, coordinate with a larger um, intergalactic organization of time managers. So, but they are not necessarily a part of some kind of cohesive intergalactic universal, you know, time management organization. It really becomes beholden upon civilizations that develop time travel technology to then become sort of responsible to manage their own, you know, temporal management uh, system of the area of space, which are responsible for, and certain people get tasked with that. And there isn't certain, there's an approval rating process that happens with the intergalactic temporal management people. And so when people act outside of that, which does happen, um, it, it usually doesn't happen for long. Um, because the temporal managers in the universe um, will eventually get around to it, essentially, and they, because <laughs> they, have, they have time. Well, because they they have the power, they have the infinite power of time. They they really have the ability yeah. to do whatever they want to do in whatever amount of time that they need to do it in, without ever thinking or worrying about running out of time. Because effectively having that level of of management control over your temporal space means that you just don't even have to worry about the same things that people who exist in the linear time stream have to worry about it and how you choose to interact with that. And so their management system is operated primarily, I am to understand, by what they call a system of nudging, meaning their ability to look at the time streams and see things or events or people that play a part in those things or those events that need to occur to allow other things to occur or to increase the probability that those other things will occur. So a lot of things, as far as if you really wanted to nudge something in time, that isn't about like coming back and killing someone or coming back and blowing up, you know, a power plant or doing something anywhere remotely radical like that. But it really often comes down to if you understand the nuance of it, nudging the right person to do or not to do one thing. And if you understand the process and the mechanisms well enough and you know how to pick that one thing out, then mm-hmm. the nudge becomes paying that person a visit and saying, hey, uh, i give you a little nudge here because it might just be important for your own personal destiny and the destiny of the world that you live on. And 
good luck with that. We just want to figure we'd let you know. And apparently their process about that is incredibly honest. They they don't they're not manipulative or coercive. They don't disguise themselves and try and use weird subterfuge to make that shit happen. If they decide that you need to nudge, they will literally like have a person yeah. appear in your bedroom in the middle of the night, sitting in a chair, wearing an environment suit that will introduce themselves and explain who they are and why they're there and explain why the particular nudge they're attempting to give you is important and why that particular action that you take or not take is important, not just for you, but for other people. And they're just incredibly straightforward about that. And, and it's, that's kind of their major process of nudging. So what they do and now, so what I'm going to understand their headquarters, where they are based right now, which is a weird thing to say about people who are time travelers, but um, is somewhere about mid 21st century. So somewhere, let's say, yeah. yeah, let's say somewhere between about 2047 and 2052 somewhere. So I'm not even going to give the year of what I would might know that it might be. So let's just say it's somewhere in that window, which means if you wanted to go there, uh, if you or I wanted to go there, and we did not have the ability to travel forward in time, we're not going there. So as far as a defensible space, anyone who does not have the ability to travel into the future to harm you cannot do anything to you. So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, from what I understand, their headquarters exists within a contained temporal bubble of space, meaning and this this was simplified to me, and I think because whatever their real system of measuring and understanding, this is much more complicated. So I'm going to simplify it the way it was simplified for me. Imagine, if you will, that everyone inside this bubble, nothing changes for them as they go from day to day to day, except, you know, time moves in a, a similar, simple linear process for everyone inside the bubble, people in time for Outside of that bubble, let's say the, enti- the rest of the entire planet in that year that they're ahead, mid-century, changes according to the nudges that have been made. So as they continue to go through this process of nudging, there's a shifting process so that, let's say, every day they wake up, they look at the planet and say, oh, Shiny chrome cities with flying cars, we did it, great, we're on track, everything's dandy. Or they may wake up a morning and go, oh, the whole planet is burnt to a cinder, we screwed up, let's nudge something else. Yeah, Yeah. and that, that none of these outcomes have happened yet, even though they are in the future. And I know this mm-hmm. is this is a weird thing that, to, to explain to people, because a lot of people think because the future has already happened that it's already decided. And that's actually not how it works. Even if you're in the future, it's not, you're not in the future at that point, that's your present. And then how you interact with the past is different than how say we here in this present interact with someone in the future. So actually how you interact matters on your particular point of view. So it's not really right to say, well, the future's already happened, so wouldn't someone from the future already know, like, what's going to happen? And the answer is no, they wouldn't necessarily. It depends on so many other variables of possibility, probability, and outcome that 
there's no linear process, even though it happens and we experience it in a linear process, in which the future or the past are ever certain. You can nudge the past, you can affect the future, you can change the present, and you can do all of that without destroying the time-space continuum, and you can even do it without anybody noticing that you're doing it. But if you're in this neutral temporal bubble, you can observe it changing on a daily basis, let's say, as you go through this process. Mm -hmm. So that job of those people there is as they nudge, from all of these different places that they're looking through the time stream, sort of watching it unfold in the past, our present, let's say, and nudging it as it comes towards them, as if where they're at in the future is a fixed point and where we are in the present is the mobile linear point moving towards them. And so as they nudge, 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 they eventually get it to where they want to be, boom, when it lands mid-century and they go, yay, chrome cities with flying cars. Yay. We're in the future. Then they will move another 50 years forward and do the whole thing all over again from that point. And then we'll anyway. So that that apparently that's basically what they do. Their ability, their abilities to, to affect time and space are greater than that, but they understand through these other larger intergalactic time management organizations don't do it. Just don't do it. Mm. The negative consequences for using a baseball bat when you're trying to, you know, do something with temporal mechanics is very unwise. You want to use the most delicate, delicate scalpel that you can and making these very tiny adjustments and very tiny nudges because, yeah, really radical things can happen if you nudge too hard. So it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a game of, and science of nuance from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Less is more. And I've heard of these bubble realities before. In fact, some of, uh, during wartime and stuff out in space, um, some of these characters know how to hide within bubble realities. And didn't you describe, yeah. like, how you do that, like you go up to a, describe just really quickly how you, I don't want to give it away, but how you get into a bubble reality for people. You know what I mean? Like well, you, you go up to it and punch kind of through and... Um, I don't know that I would say that it works like that. It's more like inflating a balloon where there isn't one. And that once you inflate that balloon, the space within the balloon becomes the pocket. And depending on where you want that pocket to be temporally or spatially is something that you can decide when you make the balloon that's not there. Mm. Cool. Yeah. It's it's a it's it's a again it's it's a, a weird kind of process, but but it, it can be done spatially, it can be done temporally, and you can adjust the temporal coefficient within that balloon. So if you're within mm-hmm. that temporal bubble, time can either be moving slower or faster than everything around you, depending on what you want to yeah. set the temporal coefficient at. Okay, and isn't it also like we got so many different military secret space programs experimenting with timelines, jumping, all that. They've done that for at least 70 years, but hundreds of thousands probably. And they've caused collapsing of timelines, right? And so do you want to explain to people what happens when a time, what the time core does in those situations? 
Well, that's another interesting uh, and very misunderstood concept. So collapsing timelines doesn't necessarily come from someone making a mistake or using an experiment that went wrong. Collapsing timelines actually is a thing that, again, happens naturally and organically like wormholes. So it's just that we live in an era where information is so accurately and massively stored that we have the ability to check, double check, and recheck that data in a way that we can see these anomalies um, a bit more than you could 100 years ago. The system of recording information of newspapers, telegraphs, letters, like, you know, major um, or even semi-minor, like, collapsing or merging timeline factors might go completely unnoticed uh, by the larger general public. Or in some cases, people see something differently and they just mm -hmm. tell themselves, oh, I guess it's always been that way. Well, I guess that my, my memory's wrong. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, that, that actually happens dreams. too. Yeah, I mean, like, for, like a, if you walk past a statue every day in the center of town on your way to work and, and it's a guy on a horse with a, a raising a sword, you know, on his right arm, and then one day all of a sudden it's a guy on a horse raising the sword in his left arm, and you're like, wait, wasn't that the right arm? And then you convince yourself, well, no, that can't possibly be right. How could that have possibly changed? No one changed the statue. I just must have that backwards. Well, how, the, how could that happen? Don't I feel dumb? And then move on from it because <laughs> to, to sit there and try and explain that somehow something that, you know, you've seen every day is now completely physically different without an explanation of it, how it could have occurred, your brain's just going to like find a way to be like, nah, dude, you just you you had it wrong. Your brain was backwards. Um, <laughs> instead of asking like the serious, trying to like do and you know some kind of serious investigation on how the arm changed. You know, like you start go around and start asking people now. And again, most people, even if their brain goes to this place, well, should I start asking my friends? Do they remember the sword and the arm in the right. right or the left? And then most people, though, when they start, if they think that, they're going to, oh, everyone's going to think I'm crazy if I start going around asking them weird questions like that. Oh, I better not do it. And then no one's going to ask. Right. So we're just living exactly. in an era of information where we can observe these ripples more than we could even a half century ago or even a few decades ago, to be honest with you. Wow. So the, the ability, so, so there's a natural organic process of, of how, you know, timeline probably, I don't like using the word timelines because I don't think that's really what they are. They're probabilities and possibilities, and a probability isn't the same as a possibility. They're different as far as what they represent in a temporal field or in a temporal stream. And a probability isn't always a possibility, even if a possibility exists. Possibilities are infinite, but probabilities aren't probabilities are mathematical and so it turns out that while you do have infinite possibilities we don't have infinite timelines we don't actually have infinite timelines because even though you have infinite possibility you don't have infinite probability probability is finite mm -hmm. because you have finite probability that really means there's only so many temporal lines that are moving at any given time and they wiggle 
across each other, and sometimes they merge, and sometimes they you know bleed over, and sometimes they collapse into each other, and sometimes they break apart, and and most of the time no one ever notices, and, and even is aware that it's happening. But it's actually a completely natural phenomenon that just freaking happens. Mm-hmm. Now there so can cool. also be effects that also affect that from like somebody messing with the time space continuum or screwing with time that can also happen, but it's, uh, there is a completely natural organic reason for most of it. Are they using quantum computers for that to help out? Oh yeah, they have to. They have to do the calculations. Yeah, they do the calculations. Yeah, they do the calculations. You absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, you, um, complicated, you know, subjects, and you've done a great job of explaining, and I'm sure most people will be listening to this like three or four times because so much is involved. I wanted to just uh, take a couple minutes to cover a little bit about the inner earth civilizations and the what's known as the Garthen Network, and uh, for you to describe that, and if you uh, had an opportunity to meet one or two of the species there, and just a little description of that, if you would. Ooh, a little description? Um, <laughs> wow. Well, you know, like... Okay, so you know, like, essentially... Go ahead. The lava pockets, magma pockets, underneath this, what we consider the surface of the Earth is actually really varied, meaning there are large pockets that are hundreds of miles in diameter which when you're thousands of feet or miles below this crust of the earth, or this is what we consider to be the surface of the earth, is very possible because the, the structure of the planet that is holding everything together is really this gigantic honeycomb, not a like liquid core. It's a honeycomb, and it changes temperature. So there are places in it which are hot and magma flowing at almost all the time, but that can change over thousands of years. They're cooling pockets. They're giant pockets that, you know, melted out and heated out thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago and then have cooled off. And then there's a certain amount of subterranean biological life that kind of just lives down there as far as like microorganisms, uh, like non-intelligent insects and so forth. So there is a kind of this own habitatable ecosystem that kind of naturally occurs. But as soon as someone decided, hey, on the surface here seems kind of shitty, let's go down a bit, and they find one of these caverns and they go, oh, you know what? This needs some more plants and a sun, and so let's put an artificial fusion device in the ceiling so that the plants will grow and that we can put, there's plenty of water, and then we can create essentially a subterranean, fully contained ecosystem. So once somebody figured that out a long time ago, hundreds, hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of years ago, uh, then different species that lived on the surface of the earth went down. And so there's insectoid species that was evolved and developed on the surface of the earth that moved down. There's a reptoid species or what sometimes people refer to as a saurian, dinosaurian species that developed, you know, millions, uh, correct, raptors millions of years ago that eventually moved underground. And then we have extraterrestrial visitors that came also throughout time along the way that were like, hey, we should set up shop underground. 
and some also who were looking for new places to live that were like, eh, we don't really live on the surface with the monkeys. Let's go live in an underground pocket. <laughs> we'll be much happier there. And then you have, the you know, sort of the surface dwellers. Oh yeah, no, no, the, right, stinky, right, stinky surface dwellers. Um, and then you have sort of, you know, like the post-Atlantean disaster in which you had, you know, people scatter, you know, to the corners of, you know, new civilizations around the world, as well as those who also went underground, who went subterranean. So everyone who sort of lives down in that area, we call the Agartha network. So it's a certain distance down. It's, there are access points that are near on the surface, but the actual Agartha system, as we consider it, is, you know, at least two and a half, you know, sort of three miles down. Um, and then it is, you know, a massive, again, system of tunnels. And again, not all of them habitable. Some of them are toxic, you know, methane gas, ammonia gas. You die if you tried to walk through the caverns in there. And some of them, uh, again, have been terraformed, for lack of a better word, uh, into mm-hmm. completely habitable spaces and have been civilizations that have been thriving there for hundreds, eons, hundreds of thousands of years. That's a, a great quick synopsis, and we'll continue with that in the future. And the bottom line for that, folks, is on a lot of planets and asteroids and things like that, correct me if I'm wrong, Randy, living underground is common, especially after catastrophes, because it's best for survival. Isn't that our safest for it, survival? Isn't that right? It, it, turn, it turns out that it's way more common than 50%. Meaning, I would say that more than 50% of the known universe's species have some form of serious subterranean civilized, civilized development. Because, yeah, it's at some point, if you're really trying to think long term for a civilization to last thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, comets, asteroids, hurricanes, floods, all that stuff's got to be off the table. And the only way that stuff's off the table is when you go underground and out of the weather. Yeah. So, Randy, uh, we're, we're coming to the end here. And so can you please give people your contact info, your website, where they can sign up for your private sessions, and also that you have online upcoming psionics, which is brainwave training classes coming up online. Could you tell them where to go for that? Sure. My new website is covertspacecowboy.com. And every all the updates that we're going to have and links for the classes that are coming up, for the psionics class coming up, and links to people who want to have consulting appointments are all there. Everything that we do will be let people know via there. Well, there's, there's a Facebook page, a Captain Randy Kramer Facebook page. People can also look that up if they want. And I've got some other social media accounts, but I haven't started using them yet, so I guess I should use them. Yeah, you should. Thank you, thank you <laughs> so out. much, Randy. You're awesome for offering your time and sharing your amazing experiences and helping to forward peace disclosure for the citizens of Earth here. And uh, everyone, please check SuperSoulSolutions.com and my YouTube channel, Super Soul Solutions, and you can also book sessions there under Super Soul Consulting. So please join me in two weeks for another mind-bending show, and a pre-announcement of the next show can always be found on News for the Soul on the Super Soul Solutions radio page. Until our next adventure together, onward, my friends. Take care.